2: and welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Trevor Williams. And I am actually on location this week in beautiful Honolulu, Hawaii. Actually, Allie and I had a work trip out here, and so she's working, I'm teleworking with some gorgeous views of the beaches here. And I actually did my first remote interview, which like I mean, like, on lo- like I'm on vacation kind of, and um, I interviewed somebody, about nothing Hawaii-related, but about controlled environment, agriculture, and hydroponics. So on the show, we are interviewing the co-CEO of Local Bounty, Craig Hurlburt. So on the show, Craig and I are going to talk about his background, how he grew up in Montana, got a golf scholarship, actually, and later went to work for GE, which is super cool. And then how he and his friend Travis started a investment company, and how that actually led them to controlled environment agriculture and hydroponics. And then, kind of switching from investing to CEA, um, Craig and everybody started Local Bounty and even partnered with a smaller but still very impressive um, produce company called Pete's and how they started scaling upwards, but also focusing on profitability and product quality because we're gonna talk in the episode today how it seems like a lot of companies that are kind of venturing into controlled environment agriculture are kind of scaling super fast and not really worrying about the profitability and the quality. And so Craig is gonna to talk to us today about the importance of managing all three of those things, scaling, profitability, and product quality. And then how he and the team at Local Bounty are planning for a hundred year run on being very sustainable and providing great products using their very important stack and flow technology. And they'll tell us what that is and how that's really helping them save like 90% more water over the life cycle of the plant. So this is a super fun interview. Uh, Like I said, it was my first remote interview. So I actually used a headset instead of my very handy dandy Yeti microphone. But the audio the audio quality is not nearly as good, at least on my end. Craig's was great, but I learned next time I do a remote interview, I'm definitely gonna bring my Yeti microphone along for the trip. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Craig and learning more about Local Bounty. Check out the links below in the description, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks so much for listening. All right. Well, Craig, welcome to the Farm Traveler podcast, man. How are you doing? It's great to be with you. Doing well today. Good. I'm excited to chat with you. You are with a really cool company, um, which we were talking with earlier. I really love learning about hydroponics and urban farming and all that good stuff. But you guys, you are co-CEO of Local Bounty, which has a really cool technology in terms of like growing food in confined environment agriculture. But kind of before we dive into that, Tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of your background, and how you got started working with Local Bounty.
0: Yeah. Well, Trevor, thanks for having us. Um, And Local Bounty traded on the New York Stock Exchange, ticker symbol LOCL. So a little bit about my background. Uh, I started – First of all, I spent my summers on our family farm in Montana, uh, which we still have in the family, by the way. So farming's kind of in my roots. I left Montana on a, of all things, a college golf scholarship and uh, ended up in the southern United States and then got an MBA. And then my career kind of moved me all over. Um, I had a, a, a big job at General Electric kind of during the Jack Welch glory days, learned a lot about how to run businesses. And when I was pretty young, I became a CEO. I ran two different companies in the energy business. I was a CEO for about 15 years. And then about eight to 10 years ago, I started a private equity firm where we were basically doing what they do on Shark Tank, investing in um, <clears throat> and what I'd say companies that uh, were looking to grow uh, and were founder-oriented. And that's when Travis and I did that together. We started Brightmark Partners. And we really started investing in in those types of businesses. And then about four years ago, inside of Brightmark, we bumped into the controlled environment agriculture, CEA space, and we got really excited. And we were looking to make an investment out of Brightmark in the space. So we dug in, did a lot of research, studied the technology, looked at the companies. And at the end of about six months of due diligence, what we learned was that we didn't, well, I'll put it this way. First of all, we were more excited about the space than we were six months before. So all of our research had led to more enthusiasm. And then secondly, disappointingly, we didn't really feel there was a business that we felt was investable from our perspective. And so we looked at each other and said, this industry is 1000% inevitable. And I use that word a lot, inevitable. In 20 years, in 50 years, indoor farming is going to be a huge part of our discussion. Today, it's people like you that are helping us get the story out. So we appreciate you, Trevor, for doing this. Um, So we felt it was inevitable. We looked at each other and we literally shut down our private equity firm and started Local Bounty. And we did so kind of back solving for everything we felt was missing in the space. And so Local Bounty went from a whiteboard to trade it on the New York Stock Exchange in about three and a half years. Now we have 250 employees, um, amazing employees, I will say. Um, We have, we're in 10,000 plus grocery stores around the country. Uh, We have locations in the Northwest, two in California, one under construction in Georgia, just entering into commercial operations and others uh, that are um, identified
2: in other places
0: around the U.S., So, maybe I stop there, Trevor.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's a lot to unpack there. I mean, I'm sure that three year process from like planning it out on the whiteboard to the New York Stock Exchange, I'm sure there was a lot going on during that time, right?
0: Yeah, it was uh, a great time. It was so much fun. Uh, But when you're building something that has so much potential, uh, I think, you know, especially in today's world, it's, it's easy to get excited about it. And what Travis and I were super excited about was uh, the way we've been doing specifically perishables, let's just say leafies, herbs, berries, things of that nature, the way we've been doing it as a country or as, a, as the human race doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We're growing things a long way from the consumer, and then we're shipping it with a high carbon footprint from wherever the product will grow to where people want to consume it. And we just don't need to be doing that anymore. And we're seeing with the war in Ukraine, we've got the food sovereignty issues. We've got supply chain, ch- chain challenges. You know, we've got all kinds of what I'll say wind. Wind's kind of blowing in the face of traditional farming, especially with products that don't travel well. Uh, like perishables, like the ones I just mentioned. And so it's just a huge opportunity. And it was so much fun to dig in and really start to understand how to build a company built for success over the next hundred years and putting it on a great foundation.
2: Yeah, those are really good points. And I've heard from a lot of people in the industry, especially that have kind of started CEA businesses like you, um, they talk about the 3000 mile salad and how just a simple salad usually takes like 3000 miles to get from the farm to your plate. And I mean, that's, that's first off a lot of distance, but that's also not a very calorie dense food that we're putting so much resources into getting there. And so I feel like CEA's, like, you guys are really trying to solve that problem in growing yeah. it locally, growing it efficiently. And I mean, I mean, like you said, like this is definitely something that's going to be inevitable. Like it's going to happen. It's going to I mean, it's already proved that it's a great technology. So it's great that you guys are kind of I don't know. It seems like you guys are kind of spearheading this.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, um, we use 90 percent less water, 90 percent less land. And the product is better because it hasn't been introduced to. You know some kind of a triple washing concoction where the product starts degrading you know way back near the field and as a result our product can last a lot longer in your fridge so in my house trevor every tuesday we have taco tuesday and we'll buy lettuce on monday because we don't know if the lettuce will last long enough if we bought it like the week before and i don't know about you guys but i think a lot of families we sure do throw away a lot of product uh each each you know week or whatever, just because the product goes bad. And I think one of the things, in fact, one of the reasons we named the company Local Bounty is because we kept hearing over and over again, end consumers, the people that are eating the product want more local products. The retailers want more local products. And as a result, we named it Local Bounty. So we wanted to get closer to the consumer so the consumer could have a better relationship with their leafies than they've had in the past. And I think a lot of people, I know when when I was younger, I just wouldn't buy lettuce because I couldn't really, I didn't really have a line of sight on a salad, right? So I just didn't buy it. But if I knew my product was gonna last three weeks or behave more like a carrot, then I would probably have had more lettuce in my fridge knowing that I, I know I'm gonna eat a salad in the next three or four weeks, right? And it's a different product, a completely different product That behaves differently for the end consumer and is sustainable at the same time. So this is why I use the word inevitable. The whole thing, the whole movement is inevitable.
2: Yeah, I like that. And before we kind of dive into the next question, of course, I got to ask, what is your what's your go to taco for Taco Tuesdays? I'm a big fan (laughs) of tacos.
0: (laughs) Well, it's funny Tacos for me are kind of a vehicle to get guacamole in my stomach. <laughs> there, you, there you go. That's a good yeah. use. My, my wife is an amazing cook, and we love Taco Tuesday. In fact, today's Friday, by the way, we're having tacos on Friday. So I'm, I'm so fired up, and she makes amazing guacamole. So you know, I, I'm thinking it's typically uh, a guacamole taco with uh, some cheese and extra,
2: extra local bounty lettuce, of course. Oh, that sounds delicious. That's not too bad. We So my wife and I, we're in Panama City, Florida, and we've got a local place that has the best uh, fried lobster tacos. And those are usually yeah. my go-to. Like every time we go there, I get those, and they are absolutely delicious. Yummy. That sounds great. <laughs> that's also, and I think that's huge. Kind of what you said earlier is that you're trying to have help consumers have a better relationship with leafy greens. And, I mean, like you said, like that's something we all experience. I mean, we waste food. Not like we're all guilty of it, but that's because the food we have, whether it's lettuce, fresh produce or whatever, because it's usually picked very far away. And by the time it's picked, it's already degrading. So by the time it gets in stores, it only has a very limited shelf life. And I mean, that's really nobody's fault. That's just kind of the way the system is. And so, I mean, people like you guys at Local Bounty, I mean, you're able to grow produce a lot closer and it can have a better shelf life and probably a better taste for those consumers. And they're like, hey, I can buy this and it's going to last in my fridge a whole lot longer. So let me buy some leafy greens and that can kind of cascade and have like healthier diets. That's awesome. It's obviously a win, win, win.
0: Correct. And, and that, therein lies the inevitability. And I think the other thing I would like for your listeners to really hear is um, so many things that are quote unquote sustainable have a cost prohibition attached to them which means to say like wind power cost more than coal power so we're paying a premium and it's not it's not reliable unless the wind is blowing so you got to kind of back it up with coal power or fossil fuel power so we all would love to see more renewable energy but it's the technology isn't quite there our products go toe to toe with traditionally grown product outdoor product that is exposed to all the things that we just talked about, including, you know, herbicides and pesticides and things of that nature that just aren't good for the consumer. Um, And I'm not throwing stones at the traditional people because they've done a great job. I think that we're going to see a blend over time on just products that are better for the end consumer at the same price point. That's when sustainability really makes sense. And I know because I have daughters in their 20s, and I know the way they buy things now, and candidly, the way I do as a 60-year-old person, I'm looking for things that are better for the environment, that taste good, that um, are more or less at the same price point. Like, I wouldn't want to pay double for something, right? That just tells me the technology's not there yet. And so, in this case, the consumer is winning because they're getting a better- Category of product at more at more or less the same price point. And I think most people are just going to go there over time once we get the message out and they start to understand what we're doing.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a huge thing. Like like there are countless technologies out there where you can have better grown, more locally grown produce. But of course, if it's not going to be if it's going to be super expensive for consumers, they're not going to buy it. Like if you have a local head of lettuce for example that's like $20 they're not going to buy that versus a head of lettuce from Mexico that's $2 i mean right. that's not very sustainable of course one is probably doing better practices than the other but in terms of cost point it's just not there
0: yeah and i think that's the big difference in why indoor farming is to some degree now taking off because you know like we you mentioned stack and flow our technology our technology allows us to get yields that can go toe to toe with you know the traditionally grown product. so really we're in a position where we can offer the customer a much a product that just behaves differently it'll last longer in their fridge it has better texture and you know it just it's it's more reliable and as a result i think over time people will get that figured out and say wow wait a minute like you mentioned panama city florida our facility in georgia is going to be a huge facility um, we're already halfway through the construction there maybe a little bit beyond that and that's right on i-75 so it'll go north south from there and it's a big facility for the southeast and we can expand that so yeah. our product will be going into florida it'll be going up you know the, you know into let's say south southeastern part of the united states so you know i think what's happening is there's more and more accessibility to the product as we kind of build this this out.
2: That's awesome. And that's huge, the accessibility portion. And let's kind of talk about the technology of it if you want to. I mean, yeah. I know that CEA, there's a bunch of different hydroponic, aeroponic technologies that you can use. So what does the exact process look like for y'all at Local Bounty? <laughs> like what is that stack and flow technology?
0: So just in a nutshell, we both came from the energy industry where energy is a commodity at the end of the day and it's capital intensive because you have to build a power plant or a refinery or whatever. So when we started looking at this space, we were kind of coming at it from that perspective and indoor farming is very capital intensive and it's a commodity that you're selling. So it's very similar to the energy world. So when we were evaluating companies, we were looking at management teams and things and trying to understand how they were really thinking about those two big things. And so really, And I'd ask all the listeners to just, we're about ready to go technical, but I'll go light technical. So don't (laughs) let your eyes roll back into your heads just yet. This is really exciting. I would ask you to keep your, keep your, um, your thinking cap on just for another one minute. There are two types of technologies for indoor farmers and everybody is either one or the other. They're either a vertical farmer or they're a greenhouse horizontal farmer, one or the other. And so when we looked at those two models part of our 6-month due diligence here's what we here's what we found out vertical farming high yield that's great but also high capex and high opex and when you're inside a vertical farm you only really have one climate so you're really only growing one product optimally and whatever else you're trying to grow is sub-optimized so you're limited on your skew diversity so that's vertical farming Horizontal farming or greenhouse farming has lower capex and lower opex, but it also has a lower yield. So you had a high yield, high cost model in the vertical model, and you had a low yield, low cost model in the horizontal model. We didn't like either of those. So we started looking at how can we get a high yield, low cost model, which is the only way it would work in the energy business, right? Right. And what we found was if we combined the best of vertical farming and the best of greenhouse farming, we could unlock one and a half to two times the yield and really get a cost advantage by doing that. And we call that stack and flow. So we utilize vertical farming and horizontal farming to deliver delicious products on a much more cost effective basis. And so we have a pioneer patent around that technology. And we'll have many, many, many patents that will go around that Pioneer patent over time.
2: Okay, that's super cool. And I mean, that's a great way of explaining it, too, because I know this stuff gets really, really technical, but it's so interesting that there's, I mean, obviously, so many ways you can grow produce indoors. And I mean, I feel like a lot of companies, especially in the early days, they struggle to figure out which one they're going to do exactly. And so it sounds like you guys have definitely figured it out.
0: Well, it was it was fortunate that we worked backwards from you know what we believe to be many of the mistakes that were being made in the space, and build our company backwards from that, avoiding those pitfalls, including the name of the company, Local Bounty. Um, you know, many people are naming their company this and that, and we're like, hey, people want local product, let's throw local in there, mm. and so that's been that's been great. Um, the technology, we back solved for the technology, finding higher yields at a lower cost and yet still making incredibly delicious tasting, great textured products. And so what that really leads to is better economics, which means we can grow more SKUs, which means we can please more customers cost effectively. And so it all kind of resonates, starts and ends from our due diligence and everything we've learned. And then we've done some really neat things since we've been public. We bought Pete's. Um, which, you know, we should probably talk about a little bit um, and have integrated that business into our company. And, uh, you know, we're kind of off to the races now and feel we're highly differentiated from the other guys that are out there.
2: Yeah, I mean, let's talk about that. Like you guys bought Pete's, like what was that whole process like? And then, I mean, what, what was the importance of, of kind of getting them as well?
0: Yeah, so we got three main things with Pete's and the first one was talent. Um, Pete's had been doing this for more than 20 years. They had two facilities in California and were under construction with one in Georgia. So they had tons of talent, 130 employees or so, uh, and you know, we called them the OGs of indoor farming. Mm-hmm. Um, they just had a lot of reps and a whole lot of knowledge. So the first thing we got was talent. The second thing we got, Trevor, was uh, what I'll call geography. We got California and we got East Coast, Southeast with jo- the Georgia facility. And then the third thing we got, which is huge, Pete's was in over 10, excuse me, over 10,000 grocery stores. And what that really means is they've had relationships with customers for decades in some cases, and very strong relationships that, you know, we could piggyback off of. And one of the Pete's people said it really well, the whole transaction was kind of like a zipper coming together. It just fit like a glove. And so they shared our values. And as I said, uh, we're fully integrated. Their CEO is our president. And uh, we've integrated the two teams. And I, I just couldn't be more excited to get to represent, you know, local bounty, which now includes Pete's.
2: That's awesome. And I mean, I, those three things, the talent, the geography and the stores, I mean, those relationships, those are all really hard things to do when you're starting off from scratch. And so that's perfect that you guys were able to find a business that, I mean, shared the same interests and the same passion and focus as you guys. And you could just kind of went from there and it's been the best of both worlds, it sounds like.
0: Yeah, it really has been. And it's a really important point you made. All three of those things are hard to get in this space because, you know, we're scaling indoor farming, you know, and we're one of the first, well, whoever does it you know, successfully will be the first company to ever do it, to scale it big. Mm -hmm. And so we believe we have everything in place to do that. And, you know, we're super excited about doing that. Um, But the three things we got were super important. And uh, I think it's just so exciting that now we have 250 employees all rowing in the same direction and um, under one banner, you know, with uh, everybody just, you know, kind of passionately moving the ball forward.
2: So in addition to those stores that uh, Pete's already had, you guys are also in stores like Amazon Fresh, Target, Whole Foods, stuff like that. I mean, when you're kind of pitching these products to those companies, are they big on the sustainability thing? Like what is kind of the selling point for them whenever you're pitching them um, stuff from local bounty?
0: Yeah, it's such an important question. I think sustainability is more and more important. uh, And many of the companies you mentioned have sustainability metrics of their own that they're Mm. chasing. And so we could go in and talk to them about how our, you know, our carbon footprint looks like this and, and they can layer that in. I think they're looking for, you know, having geography, right? Cause they want to, if they're going to do it, they want to do it across their footprint. And that's one of the exciting things because, you know, we were servicing a lot of customers in the Western United States. And now that we're opening Georgia, we're able to take those same customers that have stores in the Eastern United States and start to deliver there. So they're looking for scale. They're looking for talent, uh, leadership teams, and people that can execute. So there's a there's a broad conversation there, but they definitely understand the benefits of the product. You know, there's been several listeria outbreaks with traditional product. You heard it, you know, with some of the fast food restaurants and things like that. Um, they understand that there's the risk there. I think they're they're all, you know, probably realizing their own shrink or their own waste from product that they're not selling you know with our product they get a longer period of time to sell so there's a there's a stew of things that they're looking at um and i think it's certainly helpful to have those deep relationships and and candidly just being good listeners to try to figure out exactly what they really need and uh and how we can best service them
2: that's so cool. And, I mean, do you have meetings with them where, I mean, you're not only kind of like educating them about your business, but you're also kind of educating them about kind of the current technology in agriculture. So do, are they kind of just not aware of it or are they kind of blown away that this tech exists? Like what's going on there?
0: No, I think I would say their IQ is uh, high and getting higher. Mm, okay. uh, I do believe the whole industry, controlled environment, agriculture has suffered greatly from overcommitting and underachieving. And so I think the clutter that is out there has made it harder for the serious people to have those conversations because they're like, I'd really like to see because these guys told me this and blah, blah, blah. So it's normal at the early stages for some companies to succeed and some companies not to I think overall they're very excited about the space, and are I think their IQ is high, as I said, and getting higher. But I think they're going to start really differentiating um, with a what uh, you know. You've heard the phrase of flight to quality. I think they're going to be focusing on quality partners and people that have the capitalization, the talent, and the wherewithal to to scale the business.
2: You know, I'm really glad you brought that up because that's something I really wanted to talk about. I know that like in this CEA industry, there are a bunch of businesses that it seems like they are scaling at insane rates. I mean, I know that there's some like really, really, really big, like international controlled environment ag businesses that have like something over a billion dollars in investments, but they're not profitable. And they're not expected to be profitable for like decades. And so I mean, how difficult is that? Like not trying to scale too big, but also being profitable, but also making sure you're having a good product. So how hard is it to kind of juggle those three things simultaneously?
0: So this is such an important question and I'm going (laughs) to answer brutally, honestly. Um, One of the reasons we didn't invest in an existing business was because of this question. Mm. And we saw companies that had taken in, in some cases, hundreds of millions of dollars and weren't projecting positive gross margins. Forget about, you know, profitability below your SGA line um, or your EBITDA number. They weren't projecting positive gross margins for three or four or five years. And some of them had been in business for 15 years and still were there. Okay. So that to us is not a business. And I believe there's going, now, back then, four or five years ago, people could raise money at crazy valuations and everybody wanting to get involved in these things, hoping that they can pull it off. We're living in a completely different environment as of today. Okay. Mm -hmm. And what that means is investors are not throwing money around anymore. They're focused on quality companies with quality leadership teams with a differentiated technology that has talent and the wherewithal to deliver. And I think what you're going to see are a lot of these companies that you just talked about will not be able to raise that next big slug of capital because they don't have revenue or enough revenue, or positive gross margin. So it costs them more to grow the product than it does to sell the product. So you need to constantly grow and raise capital to ever get anywhere. And that's going to get harder and harder to do. So I believe we're going to see a massive shakeout in the next 18 months as these people run out of money, and their technology just isn't ready for prime time. So I'll just give you one data point. At Local Bounty. In our very first facility, in our very first year, we had positive gross margins. Pete's had positive EBITDA margins because of the way they were doing things and how far and deep into the cycle they were, okay? So companies that don't have line of sight to profitability and have a technology that actually will produce a product for less than you can can, uh, sell it for, Those companies, like in the case of indoor farming, vertical farming, they may end up as really cool, like climbing walls for ninth graders um, or whatever, but they, and greenhouses may end up as basketball courts or something indoors. I don't know, but they're going to be repurposed for other things um, in my opinion, because they just didn't take the, the ability to, to grow a delicious product profitably, seriously enough in the beginning. And so when we had positive gross margins in our very first year, in our very first facility, we knew that our technology worked and we knew it was different.
2: That's kind of funny. That's kind of the opposite. A lot of these CEA companies start off with, they repurpose old warehouses. And so it's interesting to hear that like a lot of them are scaling too much and they're their CEA environments are then going to be basketball courts or something like that. So it's interesting to see that, I mean, kind of the issues with scaling too quickly.
0: Yeah. And I get, you know, the other thing too is, um, you know, many of the distribution centers aren't located inside the cities. I mean, we've heard of situations where people are doing that. They have to ship the product out of the city into the distribution center, then it goes back into the city. So they really didn't think all that through too well. And, um, you know, we, we look at local as anything inside of three or 400 miles where the product can be harvested into a distribution center the same day or the next day and into the grocery store the day after that. So you've got a ridiculously high quality product, right? So, I mean, look, here's the bottom line. We hope everybody can succeed because it's a massive, massive opportunity. I just think if you don't have positive gross margins, how are you ever going to be profitable? Mm-hmm. It's just a math problem. It's not, it's not enough to say we use 90% less water, and 90% less land. That's just not going to get it done moving forward in the reality of the world that we're living in right now, Trevor. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you've got I, those good selling points,
2: you've also got to have like some sort of, you've got, you've got to be realistic. I mean, you can't just like take in all the investment money. You've got to be profitable at the end of the day. I mean, I feel like no matter what, any business has got to be profitable in some sense, in order to stay around for the long haul?
0: A a million percent. You're absolutely right. And again, maybe it's because we came from the energy world and we learned so much over there on how those businesses, what they need to look like to succeed. But I will tell you right now, we built local bounty for a hundred year run uh, because indoor farming is inevitable. But does that mean we're not doing R&D to improve Genetics and other things, um, the way our the way our our plants operate, and you know, doing that kind of work. Of course, we're doing that kind of work, but I guess the point is, everything we do is additive to the business, which allows us to get to profitability faster once we get to the scale we need to be at. So, um, it, it everything has changed on the in the financial markets since the CEA boom kind of happened. And I think there's there's just a reality check coming for many, many companies in the space. And that clutter that I mentioned will get cleaned up in the next
2: couple of years. Oh, I believe that. And even, even with that reality check, I, do you feel like COVID was a reality check? Because I mean, I feel like it showed us the real pain points in our food supply chain and then how companies like you guys can really help decrease the burden. I mean, I feel like we have just such a, finely controlled food supply chain, especially here in the United States, where if one thing goes wrong, there's going to be a bunch of issues. And so if more companies like, well, not really more, but if companies like you guys are doing it well, you're scaling at reasonable rates, you're profitable, and you're focusing on that quality. I mean, I feel like that's really kind of diversifying the food supply chain for the better.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's another great point you make because COVID was so... Challenging in so many different ways, but it really exposed kind of the food supply, um, I guess, the challenges with the food supply and having to move things around the country so far. You know, I think traditional farmers have many different challenges because, remember, most of these leafies are grown in California or Arizona at different times of the year. And you've got water challenges, right? California's having significant water challenges as is Arizona you've got um, fertilizer costs going up you know 10x you've got migrant workers you know it's more and more difficult outdoors are using a lot of people in a field you know at local bounty we have people in lab coats inside an air-conditioned building with full benefits right so it's a completely different thing on the labor side labor costs are going up. Many of the cost drivers for the traditional farmers are going up, whereas because our yields are getting better and many of the technology advances that we're having, our costs are are either staying the same or going down. Um, So that cross-section has happened in certain product categories. And I think once the consumer figures out what the options are and it's in enough stores, you know, because right now we're just not big enough to really, you know, get, every grocery store in America. Right. So, um, it's just, look, it's inevitable. It's happening. Uh, there's going to be a shakeout. There will be multiple winners, but not as many are in the field today.
2: Yeah. I I think that'll be interesting to kind of see in the next like five or so years, like who stays, who goes, who scaled way too quickly, who wasn't focusing on quality and stuff like that. I mean, I've seen some companies like a, like a Gotham greens, for example, they, they're, I, I believe they're based out of New York, and it seems like they're really just staying in New York, like New York, maybe New Jersey, but that's pretty much it. And so, I mean, I feel like there are some companies out there scaling very well, and then some that are taking in a lot more money than they can handle, and they just like want to grow, grow, grow because they think that this is the future. I mean, it is, but they think that their business is only the future. I feel like they're not really taking into account um, the other businesses out there that are doing things maybe a little bit better than them.
0: Yeah. And I think they're, they're maybe trying to technology whip the problem and, and, you know, it, it it's just a very capital intensive way of getting to, I mean, uh, you know, it's lettuce and berries, right? So if you've raised a billion dollars to get a technology that works, um, you're going to have to sell a lot of lettuce and berries to ever pay that billion dollars back. Right. Oh yeah, and,
2: You're going to be selling lettuce and berries for years, yeah, for decades. Right. And are the markets even big enough?
0: So it, it's just kind of a, look, I cast no stones at anyone. I admire everybody. What a Teddy Roosevelt, the man in the arena. If your listeners haven't heard that or, or read that, go read the man in the arena. I admire everybody trying to figure this out because um, the planet needs us to get this right. Uh, and so do our kids and grandkids and everything else. So I admire everybody. I, there's just, uh, in my opinion, Trevor, there's going to be some shake out here and it's coming fairly quickly.
2: That's pretty good. I'm, I'm looking that up right now. I'm a big Teddy Roosevelt fan. Oh, um, I, I really always loved, loved his quote, walk softly and carry a big stick. I always <laughs> love that quote. That's a very good one. I, Excellent. I, I, For sure. Yeah. So, I, so this is going to benefit consumers by obviously getting them like very much more locally resourced um, veggies, uh, leafy green, stuff like that. Better quality, probably at a cheaper price point, hopefully in the future. But so what do you how do you think is this going to impact farmers? Like, do you think that they can like your traditional farmers? Like, do you think they they can kind of focus more on specialty crops or? this might be a great example for um, helping reduce food deserts, whether you're in a metropolitan area where, you know, there's not really any farms for like a hundred miles. Like how do you think it's going to impact different farmers?
0: You know, it's an important question. And I I mentioned at the very beginning, I grew up on my family farm every summer on our family farm. So I'm sensitive to farmers. I think what's going to happen is traditional farming is important. And, you know, for example, we have a dry land wheat farm where we grow, wheat, we harvest it and we put it in a granary. If we don't like the price of wheat, when we put it in the granary, we wait however long, six months a year and sell it the next year, but we're storing the grain in a granary and it's just as good, you know, six months from now as it would be today. You can't do that with lettuce. So I don't see indoor farming as inevitable for things like grains and corn and other products like that. So maybe traditional farmers end up doing more of that. Um, I don't know, but I do know, think of it this way, just, just really simple. Like when I talk to fifth graders, this is what I say. If you could grow a product, if you could consume and eat a product that was grown nearby by some of the people that you may even know in a local farm with local employees all of which have benefits and are paid a living wage would you and it tastes better lasts longer has great texture at the same price would you do it i've never met anyone that says they wouldn't so it's it's just a matter of getting the message out and When you go into your grocery store next time, go look on the wall. It's very complicated there. Like it's kind of, you know, it's cluttered. There's a lot going on on that, on that produce aisle, right? The lettuce aisle. I think what needs to start happening is consumers IQ comes up and they start looking for a product that's more locally grown, that has the 90% less water and land and has, you know, local workers. And you can then, you know, feel... Like I'm getting a product that will behave better and I'm doing something good. That's the double dipper. That's when you know you really have something. And that's why Travis and I got so excited about the business when we
2: shut down our private equity firm. Yeah, I'm sure that was a huge pitch or a huge switch, like moving from that private equity firm to this. And I mean, I mean, kind of like you're saying, like there's so many... I don't know, there's so many food labels, so much misinformation in a grocery store, for example. I was chatting with um, a beef rancher from Georgia, actually, uh, last week for our interview. And we are talking about, like, the country of origin labeling for beef and how they're usually not there. And so you have no idea where that beef came from. And if you want to support regenerative agriculture or grain-fed, grass-finished, whatever, uh, you, you sometimes can't do that because that information's not there. And, I mean, I, I feel like we might have, hopefully have some stricter labeling laws going forward to where if you want to buy some cea grown lettuce grown within 100 miles you can maybe do that like there would be some great labeling on there to show you i, I just to really kind of like better better educate the consumer where they're getting their product i mean not only do you want consumers to buy great products you've also got to very quickly educate them about your product in the store like i don't know maybe you have like five or ten seconds that the moment they see their your product they got to look at it interpret it and decide if it's you know right for them
0: yeah and that's really challenging but i think it's happening and it will happen more and more over time and i think the retailers are you know desirous of of educating consumers as well so i think it's going to happen it'll take some time and it's probably a blessing it'll take some time because Candidly, you know, we've got some build out to do to be able to be ready for prime time to deliver enough product for everybody once they figure it out. But I'll say it again. If you can buy a product at the same price that's grown locally with 90% less water, 90% less land, or even a little bit of a premium and grown by people you may know in your local community, I have yet to meet anyone that wouldn't do that. It's kind of a simple thing. So that powerful dynamic. It's not like 50% of the people would do it like a hundred percent of the people would do it. So once we get that message out there as an industry, I think it's going to be very interesting.
2: Oh yeah. And I mean, I've, I've always been telling people like, if you want to go to a farmer's market, buy produce, do it. I mean, you're supporting that local um, economy, those local jobs and stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's huge when you can support those people around you that are doing something great for themselves, for the economy, for you, and obviously something they enjoy. Like, you know, I mean, when it comes to like online businesses, you always want to support friends and family creating stuff. Like also go out and support those around you, like not just friends and family, but people in your local community, in your state, like whenever you can purchase and whenever you can support something as close to you geographically, usually that helps out pretty much everybody, usually. Yeah, of course. Well, Craig, this has been awesome, man. Like, what's the future looking like for Local Bounty? I know you guys said that, you know, you, you built it to, to do a 100 year run. So, what's the next like five, 25 years looking like for you guys?
0: Yeah. So, I'll, I'll put it to you this way we just had an offsite with 22 Local Bounty leaders in July, and we put together a very good 18 month to two year plan. We left hugging and high fiving each other. We were so excited about where we're going. So, I will say we're headed into the next 24 months with excitement and enthusiasm. Um, You know, we have Cargill under our tent. They're a great uh, partner for us. And uh, so I, I I think what I would say is the plan is to get more facilities built up and operational and sell more product and just continue the path of execution, pleasing our customers and just, you know, getting continuing to put talent in all four corners of our business. And um, I, I will tell you right now, I've been involved in a lot of very, very interesting things. I've never been more excited than I am about local bounty and our future and how we're positioned in this industry.
2: That's awesome. Well, man, I can tell that you're very passionate about it. I mean, you know, like they say, like, if you find something you're passionate about, you'll never work a day in your life. So I feel like that's true in your case, is it? (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, it's funny. I uh, it, pretty much everything I do, I do with a lot of passion. But this one feels really good because I feel like we're doing something really important for the for the world, and uh, and you know, doing it with great people, uh, with great partners. So yeah, this one feels really special, and uh, I'm just honored to get to represent all of the great people, the 250 you know teammates we have at Local Bounty. It's just uh, it's just such a great honor for Travis and I uh, to to watch what we built kind of continue to grow.
2: That's good to hear. And I mean, do you feel like as a CEO or as a co-CEO, do you feel like it's very important to surround yourself with not only knowledgeable people, but people that really kind of share your same goals or the same goals as the company?
0: Yeah, oh, I mean, look, I just had my 60th birthday. I've been a CEO a long, long time. And, you know, Travis, I talk about it all the time. Life's too short to work with people that don't share your values. So I'll just talk about Brian Cook, the CEO at Pete's. Brian, the first time I met him, I called Travis right after and he he was with his CFO. And I said, Travis, you know, we were hoping that Brian would share our values. I think Brian may enhance our values. (laughs) So, after meeting Brian, I was like so jacked. I'm like, this guy's amazing. And then it came to find out that, you know, the Pete's people were all amazing. So, um, yeah, being around great people. The one thing I will say to you, Trevor, is if you have a good story of a business that makes economic sense, that is doing good things, uh, you have the ability to attract talent in today's world because people that are smart and are dedicated and and they all want to work for companies like that right I mean I always wonder like how does a cigarette manufacturing company get employees to go there like how do you hire someone to go there (laughs) you know it's got to be a tough sell right now I know people still smoke I'm not judging anybody but I'm just saying you know when you start talking about the local bounty story and I can just go through all three all four corners of our business our construction person Mike Shaw top shelf our IT person Alex, amazing! Our innovation leader, Dave Vosberg, phenomenal, phenomenal person. I mean, just go down the list. We have so much talent in our company. I'm just so uh, excited about that because you know talent is the key to all great companies. And as leaders, you kind of need to set the tone and then really be a good listener and get out of everybody's way. And uh, you know, I think we're we're really lucky and fortunate to have, you know, such a great group. And I'll close by saying our chief financial officer, Kathy Valasek, who is, I mean, a phenomenal person and just came to us at the perfect time. She had tons of opportunities and picked local bounty because she got so excited about, you know, the fact that we were gross margin positive at this stage and that we had such a great story. So, you know, our CFO, our innovation person, our construction person, you know, our sustainability person was a CEO in the energy space. I mean, just go our our general counsel, just go through the list of people. It's uh wow. It talent is critical, Trevor.
2: Oh, it sounds like it. That's awesome. And you know, I I've, I feel like there's been a switch, I don't know whether it's been the past couple of generations, but you know, there used to be you just wanted a good stable job and then that was pretty much it. Like you were happy with that. But now I mean, I feel like the past couple of decades, people really want a job that they enjoy and that they feel like is having an impact. And so it's awesome to hear that a lot of people, whether it's they're they're with like the OG Pete's people or they're with local bounty, like whenever you guys started it, it, I mean, it seems like you guys kind of do really share a vision and you really want to have a really good impact on the world and and make these cool products.
0: Yeah. And and I think, again, to your point, I think more and more people are searching for opportunities like that with companies that have, you know, a good, a good work environment, culture, if you will, and have great values. And that that's that's really a a fantastic place for the world to be. Um, I do believe ESG is getting hammered right now for a lot of different reasons. That's a whole nother conversation. But I think the companies that are economically sustainable are going to have a great run in the next, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years.
2: Well, there you go. Uh, well, Craig, this has been super cool. If people want to learn more about you, about Local Bounty, where can they go, social media, websites, or even if they want to try some of your products, where all can they go?
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, you can check out Local Bounty with an I, eye.com, and you can see a whole lot there. Uh, I'd welcome people to check in on LinkedIn with me. That would be great. Um, and then, you know, I, I would just encourage everybody to, check out your local grocery store and uh, and be aware of what you're actually buy- buying and putting into your body and uh, raise your own IQ on what's out there and what's available. And in the meantime, we'll be hurrying to get our facilities up and running so we can deliver delicious products to everybody.
2: Well, that's perfect, man. We'll can't wait to follow your story, see what's going to go on with you guys. Thanks so much for coming on, man. We'll be in touch. Trevor, thanks
0: so much for what you do. And it was great to uh, spend this time with you today.
2: Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. We'll we'll see you soon. Okay.
0: Cheers.